Isn't it amazing how often the thought can arise, now what am I doing? <laughs> what is this about? And uh, it doesn't seem to help to have, like, to have memorized the texts and just to give ourselves an answer. But what does seem to help over and over again is hearing the teachings from different angles. Even the Buddha taught in many, many different ways. He basically taught in as many ways as there were different people who came up to him and asked for some teachings. Because his response came out of that moment. You know, he was being mindful. He was in the moment. So his teaching came out of that moment. It's one of the nice things about having people like Julian did tonight just share their own, and again, not even so much what he had planned to say, but just what he did say. So we've been reflecting on causes of happiness the last couple of days. And uh, we always seem to bump up, appropriately so, bump up against this dynamic of relative truths and more fundamental truths or more absolute truths over and over again in the teachings and in our practice. And so the last few days we've been looking at living well, or I'm sorry, loving well, living fully, and letting go in terms of these intentions that set happiness in motion. They are by definition the intentions that lead to happiness. And this is for us to check out. And this is a very relative practice built on this understanding that Causes have consequences, actions have consequences, and in particular, intentions, the intentions in our mind, have consequences. And if our intention is to love well, to be kind, there will be real consequences to, that, to those intentions. Or to show up completely, to include, to meet the moment, there are consequences to that. And to let go, there are consequences. And, and, you know, when the Buddha talks about karma, cause and effect, he says, there's no place you can hide that would keep you from receiving consequences. Now, it's just like, um, so these are natural laws. When there's real kindness, there's real fruit for that kindness. But there's a, there are deeper truths, or I like it, instead of thinking, thinking of these as different categories, you know, the relative truths and the absolute truths, I think it's more useful to think about it along a spectrum. So truths that, that relate to certain, a certain view, and then as that view becomes transformed, and there's a more sort of open view, empty view, and there are, there are other truths. But these two sets of truths, they don't contradict each other, even though they may sound different. So we could say that the absolute truth is non-clinging is the cause for happiness. And the relative truth is cultivating non-aversion, non-greed, non-delusion, or cultivating loving well, and living fully, and letting go. These are the causes. 
it sounds almost like they contradict each other, you know, non-clinging and the cultivation of these wholesome intentions or these wholesome roots. Well, sure, because in the, from the relative point of view, I'm, I want to be happy, so I'm going to cultivate non-aversion. I'm going to cultivate non-greed. I'm going to cultivate non-delusion. And from uh, an absolute or from this other end of the spectrum, the desire for happiness and the refinement of the understanding of happiness. I mean, this is what happens. It's not a linear process. It's more cyclical. Sometimes we're practicing way over here, and a lot of the times we're practicing here. And uh, But when we shift over here, our understanding of what happiness is shifts. Here, happiness looks a certain way. It includes me, for example. <laughs> me being happy. You know, me having conditions that make me happy. Like people love me. And uh, I feel like I belong in my life. And, um, you know, I'm skillful. These sorts of things. So there's a particular vision or image that goes along. And the non-clinging the image doesn't involve a picture. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really uh, an intuitive sense, you know, what we call insight, that nothing whatsoever should be clung to. Or as the Buddha says, the supreme liberation has been discovered by the Tathagata. That's what he called himself, the one thus gone, is how it's translated. The supreme liberation has been discovered by the Tathagata, namely liberation through non-clinging. So I want to talk more about this end of things tonight. And it really comes, you know, as we get more skillful at this end of things, where we're, we've learned how to live fully and love well and let go. You know, we've We've learned how to play in the world of cause and effect as an individual. We're intelligent with cause and effect, with karma. We know how to set in motion positive consequences. And we're happier because of it. You know, wherever we were, we're better at it now. We're better at this thing called happiness. Our life is working better than it was. It's not saying it's working perfectly, but it's working better. And because it's working better, we become more sensitive. And one of the things we become more sensitive to, we become more sensitive to how limited our happiness is. Even though it's working well, our life is going well. People like us, we feel competent in the world, you know, we know how to have healthy relationships a lot of the time. But there's a sense, maybe we're raising a a good family, but there's a, a nagging sense of the limitations of this happiness. As real as it is in a relative sense, it also feels limited. Now, I bet everybody in this room has had that creeping sense from time to time when things are going relatively well, understanding, appreciating that my heart is not completely released. There isn't complete, full release or contentment or happiness. And we'll look around and we'll see, well, I got a nice house, I feel pretty good, pretty healthy, 
I love my partner or my friends. I've got good food in the fridge. I live in a safe place mostly. So the question naturally arises, is there a happiness that is more stable or not dependent on anything? So that kind of stability or unconditioned, as we often say, something that we don't have to create or protect. And the way the Buddha points to this happiness, he has sort of two ways of pointing to this or uh, instructing us, encouraging us. One is a kind of deconstruction where he tells us what's not true or points to what's not true. We call this anatta or not-self. So the Buddha, through all kinds of teachings and pointing outs, encourages us to see that the sense of a permanent, stable self is not true. And then, once he does that, he also has to point out, well, what is true? It's not enough just to say, not self. But then what is this? You know, if this isn't a life I'm having, then what is this? So he has another teaching. And these two teachings are really flip sides of the same thing. But this is really, at this end of the spectrum, of the Buddhist teachings, and he taught all along the spectrum from like, how does a person who thinks they're a person find happiness to this other end of the spectrum? And the two things, you know, there's the teachings on anatta, not self, and then there's the teachings on dependent origination, sometimes called codependent arising. And this is what the Buddha says is happening. Anatta is what's not happening, right? There is no self, permanent, stable self as we imagine there to be, then how is it that there's this appearance of somebody suffering, you know, and the Buddha says, oh, that's dependent arising, here's how that goes, here's how to see that, and it's the scene of both of these, and like I said, they're sort of the flip side of one another, it's a scene of both of these that allow non-clinging to arise, as long as there's self, there's clinging, tanha, that that sort of gripping. So we can't just, like, just because we get intellectually that clinging or grasping hurts, because is there anybody in this room who hasn't directly seen that grasping, getting tight about things, hurts, you know? But we can't just shut it off. Because as long as I have a sense (laughs) of a me who's vulnerable in this world, there's no shutting off grasping, clinging. So to uproot that, we need to see that it's not true and we need to see what is true, either one or both together. So I'll just mention those briefly and then some instructions that uh, Joseph Goldstein uh, spoke about recently and is kind of making the rounds through the Internet. Maybe you've already caught it, that it's uh, just <laughs> yes, a nine-minute-a-day turbo charge for Anatta. <laughs> for people who are too busy to go on retreat, he says. <laughs> so I thought that would be a good thing to share. Maybe you've seen it. Um, but it's good to look at. And it's just teachings we already know, but just done in a very simple, straightforward way. So first, just a couple thoughts about Anatta and dependent origination. So we understand some of the conceptual or intellectual sort of framework for 
what's not happening and what is happening, according to the Buddha, who evidently saw things pretty clearly. Somebody sent me recently an article, I think it was Paul, one of our regular community members, somebody who's done a lot of the garden watering lately, maybe you've seen him out there. But he sent me this article, SCARF, it's an acronym, a brain-based model for collaborating with and influencing others. (laughs) I love, but it's really good dharma. Because SCARF stands for Status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. And the point is, these, I think there's a whole um, world of this. And I mentioned some of this in one of my talks. And then he said, oh, there's some scientists studying this stuff. And basically what it is, is um, because we're mostly psychological beings, our fear of death gets translated to psychological processes. So it's not just about, we don't have that fear of death when, you know, we smell a saber-toothed tiger sneaking up on us or hear it. But we can think certain things, like we can think we've lost status, and the response, the psychological and physiological response, would be very similar to thinking our body is threatened with death. Same with certainty like losing certainty, what we thought was true, now we don't know what is true. Or autonomy, you know, someone breathing down our neck, looking over a a boss looking over our shoulder, you know, can bring that same kind of anxiety, primal fear. I'm sure you felt this. I felt this. I have felt this at times. And uh, relatedness, you know, feeling like we're all on the same page, we belong, we like each other, we respect each other. And fairness, like, there's an orderliness to our economic relationships, you know, like uh, we can trust that you're not trying to screw me or steal from me. In the same way, when we get more status, it's like all of a sudden we found a stash of food or we feel more autonomous. It's like we're getting one of those primal positives, you know, more safety, more food, more sex, those things that are sort of hardwired into us. So just this is just to help us get a lay of the land that, that we're getting pushed around by these primal forces. And it's just not happening when our life is threatened or when we get a lot more safety. But whenever we concoct in our mind more or less status, more or less autonomy, more or less certainty, more or less fairness, more or less, uh, what am I missing, status, relatedness, that's what I'm missing. Whenever we concoct that, see that, imagine that, our whole sort of physiological, psychological sense is getting pushed around, up and down. And, of course, this is really stressful. So, the first, you know, how we've been talking in the last couple of days is, well, how can I, how can I intentionally cultivate showing up fully, living fully, cultivate loving well, cultivate letting go, in order to manage this 
predicament as a human being getting pushed around in these different ways. So we're just managing the situation at hand. Being an individual with this kind of conditioning, how can I best manage it? Now the anatta teaching and the dependent origination teaching sort of takes us a step further. You know, it's like questioning the problem itself. Maybe the problem of having to manage all these things isn't what it appears to be. Nancy sent me uh, nice quotes from a recent book she's read, Nancy Vivian, here on retreat. Or she didn't send it on retreat. She's not been using her computer. <laughs> Prior to the retreat, she sent me an email with some quotes from David Loy's new book, Lack and Transcendence. And again, we, we were having some conversation at maybe a day long or some program, and uh, she thought some of the things he was saying in his book seemed familiar. So I'll just read some of these quotes from this book, Lack and Transcendence. The Buddhist teaching of anatta, or non-self, implies that our sense of self is a construct, an ever-changing process, which doesn't have any reality of its own. Because it lacks any reality of its own, any stable ground, this sense of self is haunted by what I call, what I've called a sense of lack. The origin of this sense of lack is our inability to open up to the emptiness or ungroundedness of the self. Insofar as we are unable to cope with that emptiness, insofar as we deny it and shy away from it, we experience it as a sense of lack. So does this make sense? Well, yeah, he kind of goes... (laughs) I refuse to do either of those. (laughs) I'll go ahead, because I think he he, uh, sort of says it again in a different way. This lack is often experienced as the amorphous feeling that something is wrong with me. But as there seems to be no way to cope with this, we normally become conscious of lack as a neurotic guilt of not being good enough in this or that particular way, right? And then so we, you know, we look at our life, at our, not our real life, not this moment, but we look at our idea of our life, like the past. What happened to me that I have this feeling of shame or this feeling of lack? And how can I tell myself a different story about it? And and there's a lot of healing that can come by telling ourselves different stories about our past, for example, so that we don't, um, we're not so afflicted by this feeling of lack. But it doesn't get at the core of it. Because again, now I'll repeat, that sense of lack comes from, and he says, because it lacks any reality of its own, any stable ground, this sense of self is haunted by what I call a sense of lack. So we have a constructed sense of self but because it doesn't have the reality we assume it has, there's a certain hollowness to it. Like, we think it's true, but on some level we suspect it's not true. And that suspicion that it's not what it appears to be makes us chronically trying to prove to ourselves that it is true. That chronic hunger to prove to ourselves that this is true, that I am who I am or who I feel 
that I am. You see, that's the sense of lack, the fact that we have to do something to prove what we think is true. <clears throat> it, create, it creates a sort of fundamental instability in our minds. And he goes on, uh, this is in, probably in sequence, these are just a series of quotes. There is a tendency in psychotherapy to say that our problem is due to childhood conditioning. So we just need to uncover and work through our memories of that. In Buddhism, the problem isn't just with our particular conditioning. The problem is with all conditioning, with the nature of the sense of self. Buddhism is optimistic that we can end our sense of lack and our flight from it by realizing that from the beginning, nothing has ever been lacking. And of course, this isn't something to think about. This is something we experience in life, in practice, where we're just sitting or standing or walking, observing things as they actually are, and in a moment of a balanced attention, mind, mindfulness, we observe, the mind knows, the absence of lack. And not only does the mind realize the absence of lack, you know, you could call it something else like fullness, but part of that realization, to whatever degree, whatever depth that insight is, part of that realization is, and there never has been a lack. So it's not only like in this moment, nothing's missing, nothing's lacking, but there never was or could be anything missing or lacking. That's that, um, the one constant probably in mystical traditions, not just Buddhism, that people experience when the mind, when the heart opens to what we in Buddhism call Dhamma, the way it is. It's okay. It's always been okay. Not being confused by it. Yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. And he goes, he's going to talk about that right here in this last quote that I'm going to read. The Buddhist path is nothing other than a way to resolve our sense of lack. Since there was no primeval offense and no expulsion from the garden, I mean, it feels like there was an expulsion from the garden, (laughs) but... That's the insight, you know. There is nothing that needs to be gained. So that's part of the insight. When the mind, the heart realizes there's no lack, it also realizes that there's nothing that needs to be gained, or we could say there's nothing that needs to be clung to. Mm-hmm. Our lack turns out to be the sense that there is a lack. Our lack turns out to be the sense that there is a lack. For Buddhism, the problem turns out to be paradoxical. The actual problem is our deeply repressed fear that our groundlessness, no-thingness, is a problem. I'll say that again. The actual problem is our deeply repressed fear that our groundlessness, no-thingness, is a problem. Right? Like, when somebody talks about anatta, like tonight, it always seems like a problem. You know, like, um, I mean, maybe not always, but often it 
it feels problematic. Like, what, it's either problematic because I want to get there, like, how do I get there to anatta? <laughs> or it's problematic because we feel like I have to give up something in order to be anatta, in order to experience not-self. When I stop trying to fill that hole at my core by vindicating or realizing myself in some symbolic way, something happens to it and to me. This is the end of experiencing our existence as a burden to be shouldered, inasmuch as the heavy weight of life originates in the need to secure or vindicate ourselves. In so much, inasmuch as the heavy weight of life, dukkha, right, suffering, originates in the need to secure or vindicate ourselves. This is that samsara, you know, it's a feedback mechanism. Once we have a sense of lack, we perpetuate the sense of lack by trying to fill, complete that sense of lack. Because if there was no lack, we wouldn't feel so compelled to fill it, to address it. But because we're addressing it, it must be true. You see? So it just keeps us in the cycles of suffering. So the Buddha, in different ways, I thought David Loy did a pretty good way, did it in a pretty good way, tries to point out how how the mind creates a sense of self. Then the question is, well, then what is happening? And so this is the dependent origination, which is, I said earlier, the flip side of anatta. So... It's basically the Buddha explaining how the appearance of suffering happens. Like, what is it if it isn't a self-suffering? What is this life if it isn't self-suffering? You know, and the short answer is, it's just the movement of nature. And if, you, if we want a deep, more detailed answer, it's the conditioned, you know, the interdependent uh, movement of nature. And so there's two things here, you know, it's conditional, lawful, and this lawfulness then is dependent, you know. What this is, is dependent on what's come before and dependent on what's here now. And if things weren't like this now, and if things in the past weren't like they were, then this wouldn't be this. So this is exactly dependent on the past, and what's here now. So if you you know, like this experience we're having now, it's arising because of what's happened. In, in one of the texts on dependent origination, the Buddha says, uh, uh, with the arising of this, you know, that happens. Or with the arising of that, this happens. If not, if this wasn't here, that wouldn't happen. So it's both this linear thing where the past leads to the present, but there are also present moment influences on the present. And that's an important point in Buddhism. Otherwise, it becomes sort of a deterministic model, wouldn't it? If it was just the past determining the present, how can insight, how can awareness affect ignorance or suffering? So here's an interesting conversation the Buddha had with a 
Deva, an angelic being. Some of you know, you don't need to believe this, by the way, but um, some of you know that in the tradition, late at night, the Buddha would be visited by celestial beings who would come down in their ephemeral bodies, light bodies, and ask the Buddha questions, and then the Buddha would teach them. So evidently, according to this sutta, this discourse, this happened, and the Dewa, the angelic being, said, where do quarrels and disputes originate? And the sorrow, the grief, and the selfishness, the pride, arrogance, and slander that go with them, where do these originate? Come on, tell me. (laughs) So a little pushy. (laughs) And the Buddha says, Quarrels and disputes develop from liking, and sorrow, the grief, and the selfishness, the pride, arrogance, and slander that go with them. Selfishness is yoked to quarrels and disputes, and it's among disputes that slanders are born. And the other being says, where in the world does liking originate and all the passions inhabiting this world? What's the cause of all the hopes and aspirations which people all have for whatever comes next? Desire is the cause of liking in the world. Among those in the world who act with such greed, it's the cause of all the hopes and aspirations which people all have for whatever comes next. But what in the world is the cause of desire? Where do discriminations originate? And anger, dishonesty, and confusion, and all the states discussed by the wanderer. That was one of the terms people used to describe the Buddha, the wanderer. And the Buddha replies, When it is said in the world, pleasing, not pleasing, dependent on that, desire comes to be. Right? Dividing the world into good and bad. And seeing the coming and going of forms, people make discriminations in the world. Anger and dishonesty and confusion, these states all exist when distinctions are made. The doubtful should train on the path of knowledge. Knowing them, the wanderer has discussed these states. The doubtful should train on the path of knowledge, right? So he's saying anger and dishonesty and all these other things uh, exist when distinctions are made. So it's not... It's about like uh, turning our perceptions into concepts of good and bad. Because good and bad only exist in reference to me. They're good for me. They're bad for me. And the celestial being isn't done yet. What is the cause of pleasing and not pleasing? What needs... These questions are very good. You could tell this person, this angelic being is quite a practitioner... What needs, what needs be absent for these not to occur? And this matter of coming and going, do tell me also what what's the cause of uh, what the cause of these is. Contact. This is the Buddha. Contact is the cause of pleasing, not pleasing. Right when we have experience, contact with an experience, and the absence of contact. These don't occur. And this matter of coming and going, I've told you also what the cause of these is. But what in the world is the cause of contact? Where does grasping hold where does grasping hold of things originate? In the absence of what will self not exist? What needs be gone for no contact with contact? 
And the Buddha says, both body and mind depend upon contact, and grasping, grasping hold of things is caused by longing, craving. There being no longing, self does not exist. When form is gone, there is no contact with contact. There be no longing, self does not exist. That's sort of an interesting thing to reflect on. In what state must one be for form to vanish? And what will make pleasure and pain disappear? Do tell me also what the end of these is. These are things that we should know, occurs in my mind. And the Buddha says, neither sensing sensation nor sensing none, nor being insensate nor sensing nothing. Right. So it's not about sensing things and it's not about not sensing things. Like if only I didn't see or hear or smell or taste or touch or think, then I'd be free. The Buddha is saying, that's not it either. For a person in this state, form vanishes. Sensation is the cause of obsessive thought. So, sensation is the cause of obsessive thought. Now, it seems like, well, how do we get beyond sensation? But what happens... What happens when there's knowing without a knower? Like even sensation, the idea that I'm having an experience or this experience is being known, even that is too much, I think the Buddha is saying. It's not saying that knowing, but once we, once we impute a knower, someone who's having sensation, experiencing sensation, He ends by saying, the sage understands how all is conditioned, and understanding conditioning, one is free. Knowing better, one does not enter disputes. The wise, discerning, do not keep becoming. Yeah. Yeah, when it's when they're subject object. So it's just an interesting question, just to, uh, just to hold, not to try to get the answer to, but what is touch, what we now, in a relative sense over here, we call this you know, pressure or heat or hardness or something. What is that experience when there's simple, pure mindfulness? So what is sensation or sound? You could use any of the different experiences. What is it? when the sense of simple presence is so full that the mind has abandoned, has dropped its deep habit of constructing subject-object, me knowing that touch, me hearing that sound. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's something that kind of has fascinated me quite a bit. Like, uh, I'm just watching very carefully my experience or what my mind does, for instance, if I touch my knee, you know, it's like my hand is something completely different before it touches my knee. My knee is something completely different before my hand touches it. And it's not so much like hand, hand touches knee, it's more like hyphenated experience, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, uh, this is hand knee, and this is 
hand Zabutan. And this is hand Flora. Does that, is that more like it? Well, I think how, <laughs> the way I would translate what you said into this, into this particular point is those are three different realities. And, well, he's just talking about how when he's noticing that when he touches his knee, for example, or touches the cushion or touches the floor, that they're different experiences. Well, that it's neither hand or knee or hand and and also what you said, but yeah, it's... And I think that's the, the important thing is that the actual experience has nothing to do with the concept of hand or knee or me or... And we'll get there when we get to the uh, Joseph Goldstein's turbo charge nine minutes a day anatta practice. We'll get there because he talks about the body and about going beyond the misperception of body, you know, the conceptual overlay through which we understand the body, which is not how it actually is in our experience. It doesn't match up with our experience. But we trust our overlay more than the experience itself. So mindfulness is learning to trust the experience itself, and it undermines the conceptual overlay. Self is a conceptual overlay, a very persistent one. The Buddha likens, you know, uh, dependent origination. Um, he says, it's, it is through not understanding, not penetrating this law that this world resembles a tangled ball of thread, a bird's nest, a thicket, and a person does not escape from the suffering of samsara. So it's not seeing the conditional, the impersonal, conditional, interdependent movement of all things. Our life, everything can be seen in terms of dependent arising. And when we don't see it that way, when we see life, experience life, interpret life in terms of our concepts, especially our concept of self, then we're in that thicket, that entanglement, immediately. Okay, we have 15 minutes left to learn Joseph Goldstein's nine-minute <laughs> turbo charge. This is, what he, this is the title. Busy life, no self. <laughs> Everyday practices to realize anatta. What kind of practices? Everyday practices to realize anatta. Somewhere recently, I forget where, I was reading this uh, quote. Maybe it was in the thing you sent, Jenny. Doubt is an uncomfortable state, but certainty is ridiculous. <laughs> so keep that in mind as we play with anatta, that it may be uncomfortable because we don't understand it, but that may be a good sign. If you think you understand anatta, you know, <laughs> it's probably not a good sign. It should be sort of a little bit of an irritant but it's better than the certainty, like thinking we do understand it or thinking that there is self. So the first thing that Joseph goes through in this article is the, the two uh, sort of pillars of wisdom in Buddhism, defining both ends of the spectrum that I talked about before. And they both have to do with karma, but just understanding karma 
in a, in a more refined way over here, in a more straightforward way here. So here we're understanding karma. <coughs> Intentions matter, right? So it matters that we're being kind. It matters that we're showing up and being generous. It matters that we're letting go. There are positive consequences for the self, right? That's understanding cause and effect. And here, cause and effect belongs to me. I'll receive the positive or negative consequences of my actions. That's uh, an important pillar of wisdom. And we have to keep respecting this end, even as we start having insights at this end. It doesn't negate this truth that our actions have consequences. Here, we're still understanding cause and effect, but now it gets transformed into dependent arising because there is this lawful unfolding. There's just no center to it. It's just as lawful as we see it is over here, but now we're understanding that it doesn't belong to anybody. Still karma, but it doesn't belong to anybody. Cause and effect, but it doesn't happen to anybody. And this is really, you know, dependent origination and uh, anatta. That's what that is. It's understanding karma. The whole path is about karma. It's just a question of where does it apply? How does it apply? So, Joseph talks about how personality view, Sakya Ditti is the Pali phrase, is considered the most toxic of the defilements. More than greediness, more than hatred and aversion, is that persistent sense and uh, construction of a somebody to whom experience is happening, somebody who's owning it or is having it or likes it or doesn't like it. And so he thought, well, people who can't do a lot of formal practice, are they just doomed? You know? And what has what reflections can we work with that support this deepening understanding? Basically of seeing things as they are, the conditional, lawful unfolding of things without a center. So it has three ways. One is very simple. The first one is very simple. He uh, suggests we work with mindfulness of hearing. And uh, I wor- I've done this practice quite a bit, partly because of Joseph's instruction, but also Ajahn Sumedho, uh recommends this practice a lot. And... Uh, And Joseph just puts a little twist. So you're there being mindful of hearing. You could just do this as I'm talking. So you're hearing my voice and you're also hearing maybe movement, maybe just the background sound. And then for three minutes a day he recommends, but you could do it a lot more than that. You know, in a sincere, simple way, just asking the question. Hearing, known by what? Hearing is being known, known by what? So it's just, there's a very clear experience of knowing, hearing, right? But just to raise the question, known by what? There's knowing, but is there a knower to be seen? So we just, we look. For three minutes, every day, or... For part of you, we'll do this during the guided sit tomorrow at eight thirty. 
We'll do each of these three for probably a little bit more than three minutes. But it's that simple. Because we're going to assume that the self is doing the knowing, aren't we? It's just imputed. I'm knowing the sounds. I'm hearing the sounds. So we actually have to honestly look. Can I find what is knowing these sounds? Knowing is happening, but no knower is found. The second uh, practice that Joseph recommends has to do with the body, as I mentioned before. And he gives two exercises you can do. One is, you know, a classic in Buddhist uh, tradition, which is to reflect on death. As vividly, you know, this is where you get to use your creative imagination. So as vividly as you can, and not only your own death, but everybody who you'd like to imagine, your lover, your kids, your parents, the person who happens to be next to you on the bus. So we're just, it's nothing strange or weird Right, just like uh, you know, to be a good farmer, it's not like you'd be in denial of the fall or winter. You know, you totally get. You know, there's summer, and then there's fall, then there's winter, then there's spring. You know, and then there's summer, then there's fall. And so, as a human being, why wouldn't we be get really clear about some of these basic facts? You know, there's birth, and then there's death. And like really integrate that in. So that was one suggestion. All bodies die. This is not a mistake. It is as true and natural as anything is true and natural. All bodies die. And then the other uh, thing that he uh, recommends in terms of the body, and this is all about, because you know the self... Because the body is so concrete, concrete, the sense of self gets tagged to that because it, it really makes it feel so much more real when the self is synonymous with the body. So when we see the body is m- most definitely going to end, the sense of a permanent self is ch- deeply challenged. That concept is deeply challenged. And the other goes back to the discussion with Casey a few minutes ago. Which is, and, and Joseph recommends doing this while walking or moving, you know, so walking from your car to your office or if you do some like Qigong practice every day or yoga practice every day or swimming laps, you can do it there. But basically any movement. <coughs> and if you want, as I'm talking, you can just move your arm back and forth so you can get a sense of it. You've got some movement. And the idea is, especially when you're not looking at your hand, you know, it helps because we're very deluded by our visual cues. We um, impute a lot of reality due to what is being seen. So when we remove the scene, then that experience of the hand moving back and forth, it's a little bit easier to be honest and direct with the experiencing. What is the experiencing of the hand moving back and forth? Is there any hand in that experience? or any body whatsoever. You know, it's so ephemeral, that experience of sensation, when we look carefully. Just like a very light, fluid energy, energetic sensation. 
And we'll notice that when the concentration is more stable, more balanced, you'll see sitting, it's like the body, the experience of the body is not what we imagine it to be. And people can have all kinds of experience. They can feel very light as if they're floating. They can feel very heavy as if they become the earth, very big, very small. Some people move around, have like... The whole, what we don't realize is this whole sense of orientation in space is a concept. It's not a reality. Once, and I think this happened when I was in Burma in a long retreat, and it, it's like, just, you know, it didn't happen for a long time, but it was like I could, I could sort of, this sort of sense of like here, it could be taken from any direction. It's like <coughs> I just saw how the sense of, placement in space was completely arbitrary and that any placement in space was as good as the other but it didn't fit you know it was very unusual but I saw that it isn't set as we imagine it is we create an experience and then we replicate it because we've already created it you know we, and, and then you know culturally we're all training everybody to have the same experience to see, experience things the same way. It doesn't take much practice. It just takes some sincerity, some honest, some honesty in our mindfulness, feeling, being with the body, to see that it doesn't fit the concepts of the body. And this helps to break down the identification, the body and self, that sort of coming together of body and self. And then finally, the third three-minute practice, the that Joseph Goldstein suggests has to do with thoughts, as you might expect. One of the things, of course, we're quite identified with. We take thoughts personally. And of course, uh, there are consequences to that. That means that everything we imagine, everything we think, somehow has to do with me. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had some pretty despicable thoughts and stupid thoughts and repetitive thoughts and it's, you know, it's certainly not pleasant to have to own all of that as self. So, you know, the, the practice he's recommending three minutes a day is to be actually interested in what is the experience of a thought not the content of the thought, but what is the experience of a thought in and of itself? And to get for three minutes or you know, for whatever amount of time you can do this and then rest and do it again, to get very, very, very interested in the natural phenomena of thinking and to the point where you can actually see a thought arise without being confused by the content of it. What is a thought as a mental phenomenon? And to really, you'll get a sense of, my God, it's almost nothing. That's the thing. Thoughts are so ephemeral. I mean, you think movement of the body is ephemeral. Wait till you catch a thought as it, as it actually is, and you'll be amazed. Because we give, we impute so much substance to the thought. But that weight that thoughts have is because we think I'm having that thought. That's what makes it feel substantial. 
that when we're just observing a thought as a present moment phenomena, it's hardly anything at all. Like a, he says in this article, just a wisp, just a wisp of mental energy. Yeah, anything that forms itself mm-hmm. as a thought, yeah. You know, and Ajahn Sumedho even says, uh, in his, some of his, his instructions, that, okay, you missed it, you know, well then, just repeat it. You know what I mean? It's like, we do this all the time, so why not do it consciously? I think I just thought about going home tomorrow. Well, let me think that thought again, okay? <laughs> Ready? Tomorrow I'm going to go home. You know, so you can actually observe it arising, and then what happens to it after it arises? Really, don't just stop. Really notice. Then it's just gone. That's the amazing thing too. Just as amazing that the thought just arises seemingly out of nowhere, it also ends and then ceases. And it just floors us. It just doesn't make sense when we see thoughts arising and ceasing. Now, what's truly amazing is Think about how many thoughts we've had in this lifetime and how few times we've clearly observed the thought arise and cease as a natural phenomenon. They have to cease, of course, right? Otherwise, it would be that amazing traffic jam in the mind. There would be all these thoughts. So they're going away just as fast as they're coming. But do we ever catch the thoughts going away? I was reading something today, I forget where it was, uh, you know, about this, this nature of thought. And the, the point was, you know, they're illusory, illusory you know, like a mirage. But a, a mirage is real. It's really a mirage, right? It's really an illusion. But it's still real. And this is like thoughts. They're really something. You know, it's not right to say there aren't thoughts. But what they are, they're like, and the Buddha, you know, and different similes talked about thoughts as, as these phantoms, these things that have an appearance, but there's nothing beyond it. There's nothing substantial there, even though there, there is an appearance of there being something there. And this we can catch, but we have to be really interested. And we have to be willing, you know, with all the things we can be doing with our life, we have to give it some time. So I thought it was sort of, Interesting, and, and Joseph Goldstein says that he was on retreat, and then he goes, I'll, I'll just read this section, he says, uh, I can't see it here, but he, he was saying he was on his long retreat, which uh, happened earlier this year, and spontaneously in his mind came this thought of an nine-minute, three, uh, three three-minute meditations, the turbocharge practice for people who don't have a lot of time for retreat practice. Right, well, that's kind of like a bodhisattva, you know, like thinking about how to be, you know, how to teach in a way that might actually meet the needs of people because it's a luxury good. Even to get on a three-day retreat is a luxury good. Think about how limited this opportunity is in the world. Very limited. This is a very rare event. But this is something that we can all do. So we're reflecting on 
like using sound, who's knowing, the knower? Is there a knower to be seen? We're reflecting on the nature of the body, that it dies, and that the actual experience of sensation is not what we take it to be normally, conceptually. And then reflecting on the nature of thought, how ephemeral thoughts are. Actually being interested in seeing thoughts arise and cease. So please play with this tonight if you'd like. Yeah. Is there a distinction between a thought and an intention? Well, in, you know, the word sankara, which usually sometimes gets translated as intention, it involves a lot. There's sort of latent tendencies in the mind. And then those latent tendencies sometimes when situation is such, then they sort of rush in and there's kind of an, an intention, what we call an intention. And then that intention can, can sort of form more fully into a thought, even into an action, right? Where we have a volition to do something, to say something, to think something. So intention or sankara exists from this unconscious place, I guess you'd say, or not yet conscious place, latent, all the way to sort of a surging into the space of the mind, all the way into some something fully formed as a thought, a word, an action. Yeah. So it kind of depends. Yeah, Barbara. Um, I just wanted to say that something that's been helpful to me in the past is something I heard someone say to me, I don't know where or where, but he said, you, you do not decide to think at all. Yeah. And that's, what, that's the insight we'll have if we do this practice, if we sincerely study with mindfulness the arising and ceasing of thoughts you will see that that thought arose, but nobody is thinking it. Nobody thought it. It arose due to dependent origination, the interdependent causes and conditions. In other words, we don't know where that thought came from. It came from everything, or the void, or all. But it didn't come from me. You know, That's what you directly experience when you observe thoughts. That you just didn't, you didn't just do, you just didn't make that happen. It's the same thing with that kind of a knee thing, I think. It's sort of the same thing. Yeah. The bodily, body is responding. Yeah. And that's real. I mean, it's a feedback loop of sensations, the brain, that knowledge of what's just happened, right? But what I'm hearing is. See, all that is concept too, just so you know. But see, even physiology is a concept. It's not direct experience. Science is a concept. Biology is a concept. Right? Do you, when you look at your experience, do you, you know, do you see biology? But I know that I can say that this is the way it works, right? Or not? Well, it depends what you're talking about. Well, I'm, I'm talking about the, the neurotransmitting of an information from a sensory point, you know, along my neuron, my nervous system, to my brain, and then it's reflecting back to, you know, that, that kind of... Um, but in terms of reality, Barbara, that's just sound. I mean, that for me, my experience is that's just sound. The words I'm saying. Yeah. You see, there's, at this end of the spectrum, sounds are just sounds, thoughts are just thoughts, sensations are just sensations, 
you know, smells are just smells, sights are just sights. We're not giving meaning to anything. And if meaning arises, its thoughts are just thoughts. We're not confused by the content of thoughts. We're seeing it as a phenomena, as a present moment arising and ceasing. So we're understanding the level you're talking is over here, the relative world where we are living in our conceptual models of things. I'm not saying science isn't a good conceptual model. I'm just saying it is a conceptual model. You know, but uh, you know, it has been a very helpful one. But we need to end it here because there are some interviews uh, that are going to happen now. And, but we'll have time for question and answers after the 8.30 sit tomorrow. So if you have questions, feel free to bring them tomorrow morning to that sit. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Take a couple breaths together. And again, we can appreciate this very rare time we have. It's very easy near the end of a retreat to want to move into more social mode and more expansive mode. It's not that it's bad. But just see if you can skillfully redirect the attention back to this more simple way of experiencing is to be interested in movement, to be interested in sensation and thought, to be interested in the nature of things in the most simple, direct way. So we're letting nature be our teacher. It's very, very quickly we're going to be back in the world of thoughts and this and that. Let's take the time that we do have. So thanks for listening, everyone. So we'll come back. It's uh, nine uh, at 9.09. So the bell ringer, if that's okay, can ring the bell at a few minutes after 9. So we'll come back for our last sit at 9.09. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.